Grab your Bibles again, looking at Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. God speaks it to us, and we look to him to work by his spirit through his word, so let's ask him to be at work as we hear his word preached. Heavenly Father, thank you that you're active in the world. Thank you that you're active by your spirit uh, through your word. Please do work in us. Please tune our heads and hearts to eternal realities as we hear this, your word. In your Son, Amen. To read Philippians is to notice that Paul rejoices a lot. If you were here when we read it uh, a number of weeks back, one of the things you have noticed is you just just keep hearing him rejoice. Now, we've seen as we've read it a bit more slowly some of the suffering that he was facing when he wrote. He was in prison. He faced the possibility of execution. So how could he keep on rejoicing with all those disasters falling on him? But it's not just that Paul rejoices through everything. He tells us to rejoice. He tells us to rejoice in the Lord. How can we keep rejoicing in the Lord when delights distract and when difficulties dominate? And why should we want to? Well, in chapter uh, 3, verse 1, Paul speaks to his brothers, uh, to brothers and sisters, to men, women, and children who trust in Christ Jesus as Savior and call on God as Father. He says finally, but he's not nearly finished, he's halfway through, and that's partly because the word that's, uh, the word that's translated there is one which yeah, kind of shifted over, over time from being something used to say, here's the last thing I'm going to say, to just here's the next thing I'm going to say. Paul's using it that way. It's not a logical therefore, for, since, or then. It's just, here's the next thing. And the next thing is a command. He says, rejoice in the Lord. This is one of those commands to hear and obey. To hear and obey with fear and trembling, without grumbling or complaining. And it is tempting to grumble. Or to explain away when life is a long way from what we hope for. Or simply because our heads and hearts aren't where the Spirit of God tells us they must be. We could grumble and argue. We could say things like, it's easy to tell someone to rejoice. It's not so easy to do. We could even ask, is it even possible to actively and deliberately choose to rejoice? Well, yes, it is possible. Paul isn't saying, don't worry, be happy. This isn't a line from a song designed to distract you from real causes of pain and heartache. He isn't telling you there's always a way to put a positive spin on whatever happens. Or that the problem is your attachments, not the thing that's happening. This isn't toxic positivity which welcomes good vibes only, which minimizes pain and has no room for sorrow. Last week we we just heard Paul uh, talking about how he and Epaphroditus felt when Epaphroditus was near to death. They were worries. 
they were not happy. But unhappiness is no reason not to rejoice in the Lord. Paul isn't saying distract yourself from any negative reality and think happy thoughts. He's commanding people in danger of distraction from positive reality. He's commanding people in danger of substituting positive reality worth rejoicing in with something else. Still in verse 1, he explains why he's saying it. He says it again, even though he said it before. It's worth his time to write it, and it's worth our time to hear it, because it's a safeguard for us. It's a protection. Well, it's a protection if we hear the command and obey the command. If we hear him speak by the Spirit of God and tell us to rejoice in the Lord and put our energy and effort into rejoicing in the Lord. It'll be a safeguard for us. Because something's wrong if knowing the Lord Jesus is not giving you joy. Something's wrong if knowing the Lord Jesus is not giving you joy. Verse 2, Paul begins a warning. It's a warning against people whose joy is elsewhere. In the next few verses, he'll mention circumcision and Jewishness, uh, keeping the Old Testament law. But he says about these people, look out for the dogs, verse 2. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about Jews and converts to Judaism. Uh, People who have room for Jesus as Christ and Messiah but think Gentiles needed to become Jews as part of starting with the Jewish Messiah. They were arriving into places like Philippi and telling Gentiles who thought they were Christians, hey, you're missing something. Well, you're missing a lot of things, and actually you're missing something really important, the main thing. You need to become Jews in order to accept the Jewish Messiah. You need to keep all the laws God gave Moses. And we're here to do the good thing of getting you started properly. These Jews thought Christianity was Judaism with a little extra tacked on. The main thing with Jesus as another thing. So they're aiming to clean up the lives of Gentile dogs who ignore food laws. who are as spiritually unclean as the wild dogs who scavenge on rubbish and gnaw on carcasses. Doing good in their minds meant keeping all the laws of Moses and getting others to do the same. Starting others properly in their minds began with some surface cuts in circumcision. But spiritually speaking, they aren't clean, they're unclean. They don't do good, they do evil. They don't cut around, they cut through. And spiritually cut through means spiritually excluded from the people of God. That's Paul's point. He says, watch out for them. Be warned about them. Don't be taken in by them. For verse 3, we are the circumcision. Physically circumcised or not, doesn't matter. We are marked as God's people. They care about cuts. This is what marks us. Verse 3, we're empowered and enabled by the Spirit of God to worship God. We glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. 
Those are true marks of God's people. Worship, not just Sunday morning or, or, or singing thing, and all of life, including Sundays and singing. A living to please and serve and honor God who is worthy of our devotion and our service. Living in the strength he provides by his spirit. So we stand firm together. So we have Christ's mind towards one another and, and everyone else. So we live transformed lives for God's pleasure and glory because the spirit of God is working in us so that we desire and decide and do what honors our Savior and pleases our Father. That's a meaningful mark of God's people. Another is glorying in Christ Jesus and not putting confidence in the flesh. Boasting, bragging, glorying, rejoicing in Christ Jesus our Savior. And not having confidence in who we are or what we have done as what gets us into God's people. Because you can't do both. It's impossible to glory, boast, and rejoice in Christ Jesus who saved you and at the same time think you're building a list of reasons why God should accept you. If reality was you building a list, then your confidence, your glory, and your boasting, your rejoicing would be in what you're doing. You'd pray knowing God will listen because what you've just done has earned your entry. You'd live knowing God is caring for you because you know you've done the things that keep him happy with you. You'd expect God uh, to look at what you've done and to decide whether to let you into his heaven. And the more confident you were about God hearing your prayers and caring for you Monday to Sunday and waiting, waiting to welcome you into his heaven, well, the more you'd reach down around, give yourself a pat on the back and say, well done me. These Jews, these converts to Judaism, they have a list. A list of what they've done, a list of what they're doing, so that God will accept them. Their boast, their confidence is in themselves. And they're telling people who've been putting their trust in Jesus that they need to do the same thing. For a few verses, uh, Paul speaks as if uh, he's bought what they're selling. He speaks as if what they say is true, as if the things they value are valuable. They've got a list of reasons why God will accept them. Paul said, well, look at my list. Verse 4, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the, late day, on the eighth day. I didn't join late. Eight days into life. Uh, cut around exactly when Leviticus said I should be. Of the people of Israel, a genetic descendant of Abraham. Not only that, of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the two tribes that remained loyal to God's King David. A Hebrew of Hebrews, both my parents, uh, not just one. Uh, Hebrew language, not just Greek. And I've added to them the privilege of my background, the decision to join the most devoted group of law studiers and law keepers. As to the law, a Pharisee. As a zeal, a persecutor of the church. Like Phineas, whose zeal drove him to slaughter Baal worshippers, I pursued Christ worshippers, breathing out murderous threats. 
and as to righteousness under the law, faultless. The law declared, declared me righteous. No, I don't mean perfect. But I was determined to obey every command. I never did anything that couldn't be cleansed with the sacrifices the Old Testament taught. So the law looked at me and said, righteous. I looked at me and said, God will be happy to have me. See, Paul saying, if anyone ever took a law seriously, it was him. If anyone ever had reasons to reach around, give themselves a pat on the back, it was him. And if you had asked him then why God should accept him, those are the things he would have listed. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I stopped seeing those privileges of my background, uh, the decisions I made and followed through on with extraordinary devotion. I stopped seeing any of it as gain and profit, as things I could pay with. And I started to see it all as loss and debt and things I owed. I saw it that way because of Christ. Verse 8, all those things and everything else I thought of, I thought was too valuable to let go of, I began to think of as too expensive to hold on to because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. See, knowing him is excellent, is better than everything. Knowing him is infinitely valuable. And the choice is between holding on to those things as why God will accept me or holding on to Jesus as why God already accepts me. The choice is between being confident in me and being confident in Jesus. The choice is between building a list worth rejoicing in and looking to Jesus and what he has done and saying he is worth rejoicing in. And when, I, when, when Paul saw is either Jesus or his privileges and his decisions. Well, out they went. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Right, looking at the words they're translating, I think what our translators are doing when they say the, the word suffered is using it in the old English way. You, you, you might, might have heard that they suffer the little children to come, come, come to me. Uh, it just means let the little children to come to me in the, the old translations. For Christ's sake, Paul allowed, he permitted, he let himself lose, he chose to forfeit all things and count them as rubbish in order to gain Christ. I think, unfortunately, suffer loss. It feels like uh, he, he, he feels a little bit too close to St. Paul saying, I put up with losing it. At least that's how I'm inclined to hear it. But that's not it at all. And you see it from context anyway. He, he's thinking about what he's losing like it's rubbish, like it's poo. He drops it all in the toilet, he flushes and he walks away and he's not disappointed when he comes back and finds it's gone. One of the privileges of um, getting older uh, is bowel cancer uh, screening tests. 
involves catching some poo, uh, taking a little sample, uh, sending it off to the lab to be tested. So neither on the day I did the test, nor on any day before, nor on any day after, did I ever come back to the toilet and go, the poo's gone. Happy to flush. Paul's not suffering through losing the things he's glad to lose. He's not suffering through the pain of not having all those things to be confident in before God. He doesn't want to touch any of it. He doesn't want to touch anything as a source of confidence before God because he's realized he can be confident in Christ and none of it is a reason to be confident. He happily flushes his history Faced with the choice between it and Jesus Christ, he is very, very happy to flush in order that he might gain Christ and be found in him. This is, this is why it's so strong in that warning in verse 2. Why calls them dogs, evildoers, mutilators. When people start saying, don't flush what you've done, grab it, take it, and see what God thinks of it, well, Paul knows how it's going to end. No matter how impressive your family background is, God will not be impressed. Your mom, your dad, your grandparents, the the person who shared the gospel with you, the Christian subculture you're part of, the things that they say are important, or your extraordinary determination to do them all, none of that or anything else that you might have a crack at doing is going to get God to accept you. There is nothing in your life worth salvaging and saving as an attempt to prove that God should accept you. It's best to flush. Best to gain Christ and be found in him because that means, verse 9, not having a righteousness of your own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Compared to others, Paul's Paul's, um, family history and what he had done seemed shiny. But when he saw it, how God saw it, what he used to think of as gain, he recognized as loss. He's better off without it. He's so much better off without it. Not having a righteousness of his own which comes from the law, which is no righteousness at all, so much better to have a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. Given, not earned. Through faith, not works. Now, what does he mean when he talks about through faith in Christ? Now, he obviously believes Jesus existed, believes Jesus is Christ, but it's not just that he believes he exists and believes he's Christ. Now, faith is practical trust. Faith in the bus is getting into it and uh, expecting it to take you where it says it's going. Faith in the vaccine is lining up to, to get it and expecting it to help your health. Faith is practical trust. Faith in Christ Jesus is practical trust in him. It's trusting him. It's relying on his death and resurrection for forgiveness and eternal life. It's submitting to him as our good and loving ruler. It's walking away from every attempt to do what he says you could never do 
and trusting him that he has already done what needs to be done. In verse 10, Paul expands a bit further on why he's happy to flash. Because walking away from that stuff as a way to be accepted, he gets to know Christ Jesus, his Lord, knowing what he's like, knowing what he did, knowing what he's doing, knowing what he will do, knowing him. And verse 10, knowing the power of his resurrection and sharing in his sufferings, that, sorry, that he might know, and the power of his resurrection, and share his sufferings, and become like him in his death, and by any means possible, attain to the resurrection of the dead. I mentioned resurrection, suffering, death, resurrection. This is his worship by the Spirit of God. Experiencing already the power of Christ's resurrection as a recipient of the Holy Spirit, who the, re- the resurrected Christ sends forth. God powerfully working in him to will and to do. The Holy Spirit giving him a new impulse and energy and determination and power to live to please and honor God. Being conformed by the Spirit of Christ to the likeness of Christ, sharing his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. In chapter 1, we, we, we saw some of how the Spirit had already been working that in Paul. As he suffered for the advance of Christ's cause, as he preferred life with suffering to departing to be with Christ because it was better for their progress and joy. He expects to be conformed to Christ's death. Whether that means living longer with the focus on being a gospel blessing to others or standing firm on the gospel under threat of death. And by any means possible, By whatever route it takes, he's not sure. That's what he's getting at. Whatever way it unfolds to attain, to arrive at, to arrive at last at the resurrection of the dead. When, as he says in chapter, this chapter, chapter 3, verse 21, the risen Lord Jesus will powerfully transform his ordinary body to be like Jesus' glorious body. Resurrection, suffering, death, resurrection. United by, the, united by the Spirit to the resurrected Christ already, and therefore empowered to live in units of life. United to the crucified Christ, and therefore sharing his willingness to suffer in order to be a blessing to others. Waiting for the return of the risen Christ, and confident he will be raised in glory. So, that's worth rejoicing in. The Lord Jesus Christ is someone worth rejoicing in. Oh, we just, I think we just heard Paul rejoicing, haven't we? Happy to flash what he's done and celebrating who he's gained and what he has gained in Christ. Now, if you're curious but not yet committed, I hope you're glimpsing how good we have it. I hope you've already glimpsed it in some of the things we have said just along the way. Some of the conversations. Though if, if I'm honest, I also know that we forget how good we have it. We can forget that Jesus came to give his life to the full. We for, can forget what Jesus has given us. 
We can even begin to buy the idea that God will only be good to us now, will only hear our prayers, will only welcome us into his heaven if we straighten up. It's just not true, though. It's just not real. And well-meaning and deeply deceived people may come along and tell you what they've done and what they're doing, why they expect God to welcome them. Why God, what you need to do, what you need to add if you want God to welcome you. Which is why God, by his spirit, through Paul, commands us to rejoice. That's why God, by his spirit, through Paul, commands us to rejoice in the Lord. I asked earlier, <laughs> how can we keep rejoicing uh, when delights distract, when difficulties dominate? Why should we want to? Well, you've heard what Paul says in this section. Does it capture most of it when I say that we can and should rejoice because rejoicing reflects reality? And rejoicing in reality reduces the risk of investing in unreality? We can and should rejoice because rejoicing reflects reality. And rejoicing in reality reduces the risk of investing in unreality. I think that's why. But how? How is it possible to actively and deliberately rejoice? I'm kind of hoping some of you have been sitting there rejoicing as we've been giving attention what God shows us about his son. Brothers and sisters, put energy and effort into rejoicing in Christ. I don't mean thinking about it and working up a feeling or finding that song whose music moves you, though the thoughts don't move you. I do mean putting energy and effort into seeing Jesus as he is. Not imagining seeing him in the scriptures. Seeing who he is, seeing what he's like, seeing what he's done, seeing what he is doing now, what he will do, what you already have because of him, what the Spirit is working and desires to work in you because of him, seeing what you will have because of him. Put energy and effort into seeing him as the Holy Spirit shows him to you in the scriptures. Because when you truly see him and trust him only, you'll have every reason to rejoice and to go on rejoicing. And your heart will sing with tunes, without tunes, and it'll be safe for you. And it'll be good for us. Let's pray. Father, please do continually um, draw our heads and hearts back to see the Lord Jesus. Give us clear view that it's worth investing in seeing him more clearly. That we might rejoice more deeply in what he has already done for us that we could never do for ourselves. Through him, amen.